This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hi, I'm Juliette Etrou-Provencher, and welcome to The Every Lawyer. I think you will be glad you tuned in today, and thank you for doing so. We are talking about the past, the present, and future of sexual and gender diverse people's rights in Canada and around the world. We recorded this conversation on February 1st, 2024. It is my pleasure and an honor for us here at the CBA to welcome Barbara Findlay Casey and Doug Elliott. Whether as interveners or as defense counsel, Barb and Doug have been personally involved in much of, if not all, seriously, the jurisprudence on sexual and gender diverse people's rights in Canada over the last four decades or more. And throughout those many decades, they have been prolific advocates for our community. They are longtime close friends and the original co-founders of the CBA's SOGIC section, now as you know called SAGDA, which is where our discussion began. But uh, yes, because you you guys know each other very well, right? That's what I understand. Many, many decades. <laughs> many, many, many decades. Okay, because you both were the founders of the CBA SOGIC. Yes, indeed. How did that happen? I'm very curious. <laughs> I think Barb should start because British Columbia got started before Ontario. And so maybe she should start talking about how they got things going in BC. And then I can talk about Ontario. And then we can talk about Mont Tremblant. <laughs> Let's go. I had the idea of that we needed a national connection among the, there were very, very few out queer lawyers across the country at that time. So I got some money from the Court Challenges Program to organize a conference. And uh, Doug was one of the people who came from the East for the conference. And he agreed with me that we should do that. And together we strategized about how to advance that uh, project, both in our respective provinces and then nationally. Yes. So I think Mars being modest, she actually started the provincial branch first. And then inspired by that, on World AIDS Day in 1994, we started our provincial branch and then Barb had her conference and we talked about doing something nationally. And also we, our, our idea was to sort of propagate all of these branches in different places. Like I, I went to Winnipeg and helped get something going in Manitoba, but we thought there was a need for a national meeting. So we... Uh, a national umbrella organization. We talk about setting up a freestanding one, but we really felt having the framework of the CBA was important. And uh, we also decided that we had a lot of help from the staff and the staff told us, you know, go to a midwinter meeting. It's more intimate. It's got something controversial. It's probably easier to, to get people on side. And so we went to uh, Mont Tremblant in Quebec, which interestingly, at that time, there was no Quebec branch of Sochi. We were there as kind of uh, queer missionaries spreading the good word about Sochi. 
And how was it received? Because in what year was that? 97, I think, or 96, 96, February of 1996. And the thing about the Canadian Bar Association structurally was, at least in British Columbia, there was, there had never before been a section organized on anything except a substantive legal rights topic. Yeah. So anything that looked like an organization of, like, for an interest as opposed to a legal topic, they, they, they were very nervous about that idea. And that was, um, that was the hurdle we had to overcome. And it was, it was where the, um, the homophobes hung out mm -hmm. <laughs> on, the, on the other side of that question. It, it really was, it, we were talking about intersectionality and really, Um, gender had come to be understood in some ways, but but that's all at the time. Yeah, I remember on the bus up to the hotel, some guys on the bus grumbling about this and saying, oh, well, why don't we have a, a group for drunk lawyers? And why don't oh we have God. a group for lawyers who harass, sexually harass their secretaries? And You know, this it, to them it was yeah. very obvious in their comments that they saw this was a immoral rallying point for lawyers and had, should have nothing to do with the, the CBA. And initially, you know, I was very, uh, that was very awkward being on the bus with those people, I got to tell you. Uh, and when we got there, I wasn't sure whether that was representative or not. So my favorite story about that meeting is Barb and I had hit on the idea of giving little rainbow pins, lapel pins, people as to show their support. Because by that time, already the rainbow flag was kind of identified as a symbol of our, our tribe. And they were very nice pins that had enamel finish on them. And we're sitting there at this table trying to hand out these pins. And it, we might as well have been handing out uh, stink bombs, you know, like yeah. nobody wanted these pins. So I noticed Alan Rock was then the, the Minister of Justice, and he was there with his Deputy Minister, George Thompson. I knew both of them. And I went over to them and I said, look, we're trying to get this going. Will you wear these? And they said, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> it means that you support our motion to have this group founded. And they said, oh, definitely. I, I knew that they were both great allies. And Alan put his pin on. And it was so funny because when he did his keynote as the Minister of Justice, he stood up there. And because it had enamel on it and there was a spotlight, every time he turned, it was laser beams coming out of his pin. And it was gleaming all across. And so everyone was really aware that he was wearing this pin. As soon as he sat down, our table, it was like a stampede to our table. Everybody wanted a pin. Everybody wanted to line up behind the Minister of Justice. It was hilarious. It was a real journey for him. That's a very great story, actually. And, and how, because I understand, so I, I mean... Uh, I, I can understand why there was a need to create this this section, but I'd like to know why, you know, because um, we have, I, I'm asking this a bit of background because, well, because of the Touchstone report, um, we, we had a chance to interview many different people from around Canada, mainly women, and some from very various backgrounds as well. And many shared that when they came from a, I would say, 
minor, I don't like this word, but from a minority, a visible minority, what really helped them is the fact that they could, uh, they had groups, support groups, and they really felt the need to be united with other people who face the same challenges and who also had the same objectives. And I was wondering, is that also one of the reasons why in 1997 or 1996, you thought that it was important as lawyers in the legal profession to have this group of uh, sexual and gender diverse people together because you had similar objectives or similar challenges? It's uh, very, very difficult to convey the suffocating desert silence of being queer in the legal profession and in the law in the early 90s. In their In British Columbia, 25% of the laws of the province explicitly discriminated against queers. Nobody, like nobody, was litigating for queer equality rights. In the equality organizations that I belong to, LEAF, uh, the CBA, those kinds, uh, the, the Law Society's Equality Committee, nobody, not only was nobody talking about queer issues, nobody knew how to respond. I went to the Law Society's equality meetings and I said at the first meeting I was appointed to, am I, uh, did you appoint me because I'm a lesbian? And the chair of the meeting kind of, that extended blink where she didn't know whether to say yes or no. She didn't know what the right answer was. And I said, well, the reason I'm asking is that would make you the first, uh, congratulations, because that would make you the first equality committee to have appointed somebody because of their sexual orientation. Her shoulders went down, and um, she she acknowledged that yes, that was why I would. And I said to myself, "I'm going to say the word lesbian once in every meeting." Mm. <laughs> and I did that, and over a period of 18 months, nobody, not once ever, picked up on, responded to, answered my questions about. And so it was into that kind of profound. Not just silence, but silence-ing that we were trying to, to find a foothold. All the lawyer, lawyers, we, we kept track of each other, in lawyers in secret, because it was part of the ethos that nobody ever outed another person, period. Certainly not out another lawyer. Our initial SOGIC meetings in Vancouver were accessible by a back entrance so that people wouldn't be identified as queer for coming to the meetings, that kind of thing. I remember very well, Barb, on that note that when we had a, the Ontario Sujik, the first time we had a meeting in Ottawa, I was told I had a reception. I rented a suite at the Shadow Laurier Hotel, and I was told by the queer lawyers that I knew under no uncertain terms should it say gay or lesbian or even Sujik. Oh, and the sign in the Shadow Laurier lobby, it said, Mr. Elliot's reception. And, and, and every, it was almost like a speakeasy to get into the suite. That's how crazy it was. But you have to remember the ethos of the time. That's kind of a turning point, 1996, in many ways, because before that, we had, you know, we had the Anita Bryant tour of Canada. We had bathhouse raids. Uh, and then AIDS came along and devastated gay men and, the, and some very great lesbians were running around trying to help us. And we were, you know, there were some cases in Ontario that were going to court after 1985 when the Section 15-1 came into effect. 
But we kept losing under Section 1. And it was actually a case from BC, the late great Joe Arve of sainted memory brought the Egan case up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and that decision came out in 1996. And of course, we still lost. (laughs) But a lot of people thought Egan, you know, that famous saying, a tie is like kissing your sister. It, It was, Egan was kind of a tie. And we certainly felt, I think Barb and I felt at that time that the tide was turning finally, that we were starting to get some momentum towards positive change. And of course, Barbara and I are never ones to sit at the sideline and wait for the parade to go by. We are going to organize the parade and be marching at the front of it. So that's that's what we did. And we became the first co-chairs of Sojik National. And to give you a sense of that, um, there was, at the time, the, the BC Teachers Federation was considering a motion to support queers. We weren't called queers in those days for sure, but the teachers, the gay teachers, did not feel able to go to the convention because they would be identified as gay gay teachers. And that was the kiss of death. So what we did was, I made a little postcard with a line drawing of a school on one side and then on the other side it said, when I was in school, when I was in high school, this is what happened to me. And I handed out those postcards and golf pencils to the, this huge crowd outside the, the hotel where the convention was happening. And all the gay teachers wrote their stories. And we took them in and put them on the desks of the delegates. And the motion passed 85%. But that, that was the kind of... Um, creativity and visibility, uh, it is really impossible to convey to young ones who didn't live through that, what it was like to live in that kind of double, to live a double life and like that. And let me add to that, Barb, you know, today, all the big law firms, they got rainbows everywhere and they go to pride and they recruit with queer lawyers saying, oh yeah, we're a fantastic place. Those big law firms were nowhere to be seen in the 90s. They couldn't, wouldn't go near us with a barge. That's right. Nowhere. All of the work that was being done was being done by small law firms like Barb's and mine with occasional help, I want to acknowledge, from the unions and from the lawyers who are working for union shops. They also helped out too. I don't want to forget them because they made an important early contribution. And a few lefty lawyers, you know, like the, again, another person of sainted memory, Clay Ruby in Toronto, who's very early on because of his political views, was an ally to our community. But it, those were the people, who, they, it was the fringe lawyers who were helping us out in the beginning. Barb and I started to be a little more, you know, and in the fringe lawyers, they were allies. It was people like Clay Ruby. There was no Doug Elliott or Barb Finley in the 80s. They did, did no such thing. They were people like Ian Scott, who was a very great lawyer in Ontario, but was so far in the closet, you'd have to send in a search party to get him out. Eventually, he came out just before he died. But that was the climate then. And it's so different now. You know, now there are LGBT groups at every law school that didn't happen, you know. 
when I went to U of T, believe even I toned it down at U of T. I mean, I was out to myself and my family. I wouldn't, I wouldn't organize a gay club at U of T Law School to save my life back then. And all the people I knew, lesbians and gay men at a lot of the big law firms. But as Barb said, there was this understanding that as long as they're not saying anti-gay stuff, you respect, and cabinet ministers too, as long as they're not saying anti-gay stuff, you just bite your tongue and you keep doing the work that you're doing. And of course, we started winning the cases in the late 90s. And we used to get together around those things. We used to see each other as interveners in cases. And court challenges definitely helped with organizing conferences and things. Of course, people need to remember technology was different then too. Like this, also, yeah. Mm-hmm. This podcast, you know, this was not possible. In the 90s, Barb had to use the 19th century technology of the telephone and pick up the telephone and call <laughs> to, have, to have communicate or you know, we find occasions to get together in person. I mean, I, another thing I will say that played a positive role in the 97, 98, 99, I was involved in the Creever inquiry into the blood system. I represented the Canadian AIDS Society, and that went from province to province. So th- thanks to that, I got to, I got to BC, I got a chance to reconnect with Barb. I got to Manitoba, I got a chance to connect with Mike Law. You know, it, it, gave me an opportunity to, on the side, propagate the CBA, Sojik faith to local lawyers. And once they saw it was, you know, a lot of activism, I think Barb would agree with me. It's, uh, it's you know, about demonstrating that something is possible. That's why it's so important for Barb to be the first lesbian at this meeting because it's a lot easier to be the second lesbian at the meeting after someone else partying in the first. Yeah, my, my experience as a lesbian in feminist spaces is that um, from the kind of from the mid seventies to the mid eighties. Feminists didn't want to be, didn't want lesbians in feminist groups because we would give everybody, we would, they would all be tarred with the brush of being lesbians, and that would uh, cause them to lose so much credibility that they would not be able to win the fights they were engaged in. So we were, we participated in feminist groups. We led feminist organizations without being out, and. Uh, that, for example, when I first suggested a case that we take a same-sex benefits case as a feminist litigation strategy, I was told that that was a sexual orientation issue, not a gender issue. So we, we collectively were so far from understanding any version of intersectionality, what we now call intersectionality, that uh, it was really difficult even to have a conversation. And so the efforts of queer people, of women of color, to say that the kind of mini hegemonic white straight women's movement, um, excuse me, were really met with um, 
antagonism and a kind of you're trying to you're trying to ruin the good work that we're doing. Barb, I just you you reminded me of another anecdote about the challenges of being an ally in these those days. I remember a former president of the Canadian Bar Association who was working on a file with me, who was at his club, and a lawyer that he knew made the remark to him, oh, is there something you're not telling us? Because he was uh, the- Because he was an ally. Yeah. So it was even challenging to be an ally in those days, not just for, I mean, I think it was especially problematic for feminists, but it was problem. It was a problem for straight men to to be allies because people would immediately start whispering about why they are being supported. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you how I I survived those times and ask you the same question, Doug. Okie dokie. I hit feminism in 1970, and it was liberatory because it ex- it taught me in a like in one penny drop. Mm-hmm. That what I had understood to be about me was in fact not about me at all. It was about the socially constructed conditions of oppression. And I was off and running. It was fantastic. Uh, I remember phoning my partner who was at the time in Toronto and saying, you have to read <laughs> this, this, and this. <laughs> and I then, in 1984... I went to an unlearning racism workshop and had the very same penny dropping, oh my God, understanding of the pervasiveness of racism. Only this time I was in the oppressor spot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that meant that I had a lifetime of work to do to, uh, to address, to unlearn, to work against the structures of, privilege as well as the ways to work against the ways I was marginalized and that work which I continue to do to this day is is uh, offers a, a paradigm to think about the ways each of us has an individual map of uh, locations of privilege and op- and oppression and how those intersections or those interrelationships, inform our own character and inform our political activism. So it has given me a way to think about the responses that I have got from institutions, from, from groups I'm in, from whatever, and to be able to speak into it in a much more effective way. Because it, if, if I'm always conscious of my location in relation to what I'm talking about, it's much more likely to be an inclusive, not an exclusive conversation. Yeah. Yeah, but that's hard. I mean, to do that, as you say, it's a lifetime thing. You can, you always, and sometimes a day you're like, oh no, I just, I just did something that is totally from my privilege. And that is, that, you know, when I, when we were writing together, I said, les angles morts, which I don't know what it is in English, like uh, the, those angles that you don't see about yourself. And then mm-hmm. when you reflect about it, you're like, oh wow, okay, this what I did is like I'm the oppressor right now, blind but I think it's a blind spot. Yeah, thank you. It's also a step by step. Yeah, you learn. You and so because you reach out also, I guess, for the information, and that's the thing. I I feel like sometimes people don't do. They don't reach out uh, to the information to know what are their blind spots, and they don't work on it. But also for the conversation, um, I'm sure. Yeah, it helped for you as well to 
put yourself in this position of uh, okay, um, does it help you actually? And before I dug, I'd like also to hear you how you you did it, how you you manage those times. But Barbara, just to know your blind spot and to know that you have your own how to, how to say so. You, you, there's there are some aspects of your life where you are clearly marginalized, but then also aspects of your life where you are privileged. Did it help you also to discuss with the other people who maybe? were not aware of their blind spots or were not aware of intersectionality or who were uh, clearly uh, rejecting you uh, for who you were uh, or did it help you or you were more like, no, no, I don't want to talk to you anyway, go learn. Because there's also this kind of tendency happening these days where people are like, and I do understand being like, I would not teach you, go teach yourself and come back to me once uh, you've learned. Oh, yes. <laughs> I found it, I, I, I'm, I'm of an educational bent. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't respond to people with go do your homework. Yeah. <laughs> I, I currently run groups for white people about unlearning racism, for example. Wow. Yeah. I like that. That's a good example. Okay. So um, how did I get through all of this? Well, first of all, I want to make it very clear to everyone, you know, that it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. I don't want anyone to look back and say, Oh boy, what a wonderful career. It was zip cake. You just stood up in court and the judges said, what would you like, Mr. Elliot? How can we help you today? And the, or the CBA doing the same thing. It was not like that. Everything that Barb and I did, you know, when you're a pioneer, it's, you think of the pioneers in this country, the European white settler pioneers I'm talking about, not the indigenous people because they had a different experience. But the white settlers who came to this country, you know, they they had to hack their way through the bush and they had to create the farms and all of that kind of stuff. They started from scratch, having left everything behind. And, you know, we were kind of in that situation, learning everything and really armed with the conviction that we were doing the right thing and that we had a certain amount of uh, courage and we certainly had the luck to be confident enough in our own sexuality to be out the work we did could not have been done by closeted people what was it that what was it that fed your courage i I think a a couple of things first of all uh, it's the way i was raised the kind of values that i was raised with by my parents and i was very very fortunate that when i came out to my parents i was quite young i was 20 and my parents were very supportive. I also had, and the rest of my family for that matter, uh, my siblings and so on. And I also have been in a very long-term relationship. My husband and I, this year, we have been together for 47 years. So that having that loving support in my domestic sphere really helped a lot. And I recognized the fact that I was lucky that way. It's not really privilege. It's just good fortune that I found myself in that situation. I know I was privileged in the sense of being a lawyer and a white male, cisgendered person that made it, you know, who could put on a suit and look like everyone else. Uh, that, that certainly was very, very helpful in advancing our cause back in the day. I did have that. I remember once a judge saying to a friend of mine, Oh, I didn't. I had argued a case in front of him and he apparently had missed the memo that I was gay. And a friend, he said, oh, I didn't know that Doug Elliott was gay. He said to a friend of mine and and the response was, well, did you expect him to show up in court in a skirt and high heels? Like what, you know, I used to get that. I don't know, Barbara, if you ever remember, people used to say, 
oh, you don't look gay, as if it was a compliment. And I said, well, what does that mean? It's like saying, I don't look like a lawyer. I don't look Scottish. I mean, is that supposed to be a compliment? I don't get But that's something that is still being said, huh? That's still like, it, it's still a thing. It's like, you don't look, and you're like, what, what should I look like? It's, uh, it, yeah. it's unfortunate. But I also think that we had uh, great clients that were very inspired. Their courage was very inspiring. You know, one of the reasons that I took this stuff on, Michelle Douglas won her case against the federal government in 1992. And that opened my eyes to what was possible. Michelle and I have since become friends. I had a gay cop who came to me. He had already gone to the media and said I was fired for being gay. And he came to see me. And I thought, well, how can I not help someone with that kind of courage? You know, uh, so the clients were inspiring. And there was absolutely a sense of camaraderie with a small band that Barb was talking about, that we all knew each other and we worked together. We were all dealing with the same stuff. If we, you know, if Barb lost a case, she could pick up the phone and call me and commiserate. Or if I won a case, I could call her and tell her, you know, here you can use this to advance this other case that you've got. No canning at the time. <laughs> And like and 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 sometimes even within our own community there were problems. Like I remember Barb, bless her heart, she was one of the early advocates for trans folks. And that made her at one time distinctly unpopular amongst her fellow lesbians and feminists, I want to tell you. Not at one time. That continues. But I remember calling you, Barb, and I, I remember you know, telling you that I was 100% behind you because I thought you were doing the right thing and I thought the way you were being treated but by our own community was really crappy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, we did have to contend. But generally speaking, amongst the lawyers, even we disagree about tactics or about arguments, you know, there were some very, shall I say, lively discussions from time to time. <laughs> but, <laughs> I have no doubt. but at the end of the day, we were, it, it, you know, there, we were all in it together, like soldiers on the front line of a battle. And you all looked after each other, you had each other's back, and you knew, you were very clear eyed about who the enemy was. Yeah. And we knew who the enemy was, and we were determined to defeat the enemy. And we were more successful in the courts in the 90s and the early 21st century than any other equality-seeking group, which is pretty darn amazing when you consider that when the charter was brought in, the governments didn't have the guts to include us expressly. Exactly. I mean, just this is the progress that, that you could do that. It's very impressive. And I'd like to hear you a bit about like, because... We have a lot of uh, really geeky lawyers who love to listen to that podcast, and I am one. And so some, since you've been so involved in those cases, maybe if you want to talk about some milestones, or not even, maybe not milestones, just cases for you that you were very proud, or maybe some that you that you lost, that also, uh, you know, that were important for you and you lost, unfortunately, and that uh, later on won for, from another lawyer or whatever, another case. But yes, yeah, so just... I'd like to hear you about the work that you did, so the human rights work that you clearly did in the 90s and the, the early 2000s, and I guess also later on, but really as uh, some of the, yeah, the progress that you've seen and maybe also touching upon today what you see as uh, is still some progress that we uh, still have to do because we must not forget that there are still issues. 
Yeah, I would say, and Barb, I know, has strong feelings about this. I would say not just progress to do today, but the backsliding that's going on. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Barb, why don't you kick it off? Um, Well, I would would tell you about the case of Kimberly Nixon. I've alluded to the work that I've done for trans people, with trans people. And um, Kimberly's case was, in some sense, struck at the very heart of liberal feminism because she had been fired as a volunteer at rape relief because they discovered in one of the training sessions that she was trans. And for the purposes of the case, Kimberly was 100% fully female. She had, she had, uh, had top and bottom surgery. She had changed her, uh, gender marker on her birth certificate, which at the time required her to have surgery. She was therefore medically and legally a woman, unassailably a woman. But uh, she was, but she was fired. And the wasteland aspect of it, at the time there was exactly one book in the Canadian library system about transgender people. Uh, there was profound ignorant, really profound ignorance. The National Association of Women in the Law had a lesbian uh, e at the by then there were I forget what we called them bulletin boards or something a kind of e e discussion group or a email chain. I'm not sure what it was, but there was one for lesbians, and they kicked me off that list because I was Kimberly Nixon's lawyer, and therefore a traitor, like in terms, uh, the, the, um, the degree of fear and vitriol that was associated with doing that case, which, you know, ended up in the court of appeal was stunning. And it was only thanks to Kimberly's courage and conviction that we were able to um, navigate the incredible backlash she got. We went, she and I did many educationals with women's organizations, for example, conferences of, of women's groups that supported, that ran shelters. And people would, people, I remember somebody coming up to her in the hall at one of those conventions and saying to her face, you have no business here. You do not belong here. And by extension, neither did I. Like I, I too got that, that splashback. And in, in, on reflection, if I were developing a litigated position strategy for a, a newly a group first first approaching the courts, I probably wouldn't recommend taking on the case that challenged the central tenets of liberal feminism as the first case. Yeah. Like it, it was kind of like we collectively agreed that we were going to leave same-sex marriage till the end. Yeah. We, we as, as activist lawyers, we said, okay, we're going to start off with, uh, with, uh, what did we call them? Same, what do we call them? Uh, spousal benefits. 
and we go to court and say we're not we're not challenging marriage honest we're not challenging marriage but we should be analogized to common law people right people living common law and we did that until we won all the common law cases and then we went for marriage and doing nixon when i did nixon was kind of like starting with same-sex marriage in the context of trans rights it 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 ha it's it fractured the feminist community that I don't I don't mean that I fractured the feminist community by doing that case, but rather the f the inherent fractures in feminism came to light around that case and they continue and they inform the the violent transphobic vitriol and attacks I currently have three school teachers who are being who one of them trans who are being doxxed and having picket picketers outside their school saying calling them out by name that the degree of uh viciousness is terrifying over to you doug yeah well i I'd, I'd like to say more about the trans thing in a moment but uh because i really feel that it's the the really one of the two major, major issues of today. The other one being? The other one being the attacks on drag queens and that is related to that. Those seem to be the two hobby horses of the religious right. It's the same enemy. It's just a different uh, playbook. That, and I say slightly different. It's really not terribly different at all. It's just the target that they've chosen and how they that the wrapping they put on their hatred is is all that's changed. But they are having more success recently. But they didn't have success for a long time. And I'll just sort of skip through a couple of high points for me and how the law evolved. For sure, Breed in Alberta was a tremendously important case that I was glad to be involved in. And I want to salute the CBA for stepping up and being involved in that case. And I think the reason CBA intervened was directly because of the work that Barb and I had done getting Sojik going. And they made a point of sending the president of the Alberta branch of the CBA to argue the case in the Supreme Court of Canada, which was uh, not lost on the judges and particularly Justice Major, I can assure you. That case was really important because that really marked the turning point that was the first case we won in the Supreme Court of Canada, hands down. And it was also defeating Alberta and Ralph Klein, which at that time, that was our biggest win in Canada. So it had tremendous, it had legal significance and it had spiritual significance. Uh, we had can, I just say for, can I just say for the people who might not have read that case recently, what what the litigants in that case succeeded in doing was persuading the Supreme Court of Canada to read in sexual orientation to the Alberta human rights legislation, which which Alberta the Alberta government had in explicit terms refused to do in language, for example, comparing queers to Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, it was a whole, it, they were, I really felt that one was also important because that was where the queers from the rest of Canada sort of came, rose up in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Alberta, stood shoulder to shoulder with them in the Supreme Court of Canada. Because, you know, Delwyn Breen, when I first met him, he had no lawyer. He had been, 
his lawyer had moved from Alberta to British Columbia because uh, they just doing the Delwyn Green case, I think, was toxic to that lawyer's business. And uh, so they moved to British Columbia and he was having trouble finding a lawyer. And uh, I helped him find Sheila Greckel, who was absolutely brilliant, still is. I admire her greatly and a great ally. But that case uh, was absolutely, you know, for me to, I, I represented the Canadian Aid Society to see how the Supreme Court had shifted in our favor was a wonder to behold. Although it wasn't, we didn't know for sure that we were going to win. It certainly looked positive. By the time I argued the next case, M versus H, which was the common law status that Barbara's, you know, people forget <laughs> when we argued M versus H, they hadn't released the Breen decision yet. We had no clue which way they were going. So it was like flying blind when we were arguing M versus H. Anyway, we, then after we had argued, we won the Breen case, we won M versus H, and then we had the wind under our wings, and then the great um, same-sex marriage reference, Barb, you remember, was like uh, a party in the Supreme Court building. They had all of these little studios set up in the in the lobby of the Supreme Court building. It was like a carnival. It was crazy. And the great Peter Hogg arguing for the government of Canada and being on our side, to be in the Supreme Court and see the government of Canada on our side, that was awesome. Um then the next one I'll mention is the Hislop case I did for CPP survivors pensions, because that was a historic injustice case. One of the, that was for the elders in our community who so often get left behind. Again, talking about fractures in our own community. One of the problems, I'm sure Barb would agree with me after we won the marriage case, is this complacency that set in in our community. Like, oh, all the problems are solved, especially for the middle class gays and lesbians. All the problems are solved. No more work to do. I even had young lawyers say to me, oh, you guys had all the fun. You know, there's nothing left for us to do. And uh, his love case was about the elders in our community. And it was the first successful constitutional class action. And then I did the LGBT purge class action more recently, which is, again, another historical injustice. The sad part is that it's not history. And I mean, I thought we were in mopping up and doing these historical injustice cases. And now in the last couple of years, it's not about historical injustice anymore. It's about current injustice. And, you know, to me, it is nothing short of horrifying. When we were doing all of these cases, this one, I know Barb will agree with me, that our number one fear in every case, starting with Reed especially, was that the government was going to invoke Section 33. And we knew that if Section 33 was invoked, it would become addictive. And also we knew that if Section 33 invoked, there would be people in our community who would say, bad lawyers, why did you bring that case? Hey, you provoked the backlash against us. And can you explain to us just why would have been uh, bad to uh, raise this Section 33 for our listeners who um, might be like, but why would it be so bad? <laughs> Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, was a compromise introduced into the Constitution in 1982 over the, the reluctant protestations of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. It allows any legislature or the Parliament of Canada to exempt a law from the Charter of Rights for a period of five years, and it can be renewed thereafter. And so the, the Achilles heel of the Charter of Rights 
was Section 33, because any government that was willing to use it could override it. And I was so shocked when Ralph Klein didn't use it to override the Vreen case. And I know Frank Iacobucci was shocked too. Um, but it, until now, if you can believe it, all through the 90s and, when, and into the early 21st century when Barb and I were kicking butt, not once did any provincial or federal government use Section 33 to exempt a law to overturn a ruling against them until now. It's not in 1993 this happens, or 2003, it happens in 2023 in Saskatchewan. And except for the uh, except for the Quebec use of the notwithstanding clause in relation to the uh, in relation to religious symbols. Yep. Yes, Quebec. Of course, I I can let me just say about Quebec. Quebec is like <laughs> let, let's go. <laughs> it's a it, it is a distinct society. Quebec has always hated the Charter of Rights. They've used Section Thirty Three routinely. Wow. Like they quite a while they used it on every law. They added, and this applies notwithstanding Section 33. So the use of Section 33 by Quebec, I think, is uh, it's it's unusual. You have to look at it in that distinct lens of Quebec. But in other provinces, it was never used by Stephen Harper. It was never used by Ralph Klein. It was never used by Mike, Mike Harris. After we won M versus H, we thought Mike Harris was going to use it. He didn't use it. But now, Scott Moe has used it, and I know I'm going to turn it over to Barb because I know Barb, we both feel strongly about it, but I think Barb in her usual way is even more passionate and articulate on this subject than I am. So I let her comment about what Scott Moe has done in Saskatchewan. So as you know, the law, the law that Scott Moe has passed and invoked the notwithstanding clause about is a law that targets, of all communities, transgender children. It is really hard to think of a community which has less power. And the way in which the legislation targets those children is to, is to require teachers not to respect the gender identity of their students unless they first out those students to their parents. As queer and trans folk, we know that that may be fine for some kids, but one of the one of the experiences that every gay and trans person has is they never know in advance how their parents are going to take it. We it's it we laughably all of us of my generation were convinced that if we came out to our parents, they were going to die of heart attacks. Literally, the but what actually happens is you get kicked out of your home. Like that, the 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 highest percentage of people on the streets, young people on the streets, are queer and trans kids. That that so it's um, profoundly cynical and vicious to say children should be outed to their parents but it's politically brilliant 
because Scott Moe wraps it all up in this is the right of a parent to, to know about, be involved in the, the education and development of their children. Who could disagree with that? So that's the argument that is being used. That's Scott Moe's argument. Yeah. And so Oh, it's not actually I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt there for a second, Barb, because let's be clear. Scott Moe is a plagiarist. It's not really his argument. It's an argument that was invented by a group called Moms for Liberty. And Moms for Liberty is a, based in Florida. It's a religious right organization. They're very closely tied with the Ron DeSantis regime. And as is typical for right-wing Republicans, it was founded by hypocrites because the woman who is the founder of it, it was just revealed that she was having threesomes with, uh, with, with women and her husband, and her husband has just been charged, who was the president of the Florida Republican Party, was just charged with sexual assault. So these are the upstanding moral people who came up with the concept of, of parents' rights. Scott Moe doesn't talk about that, of course. And the context of Moe's legislation is this. Dis, I mean, expressly discriminatory legislation against trans people was introduced in every single U.S. state in the last year. There are 800 pieces of transphobic legislation by now. The, 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 uh, the wave of um, hatred, right-wing hatred from the United States is splashing over into Canada. We've seen it in the context of the convoy, the anti-vaxxers, and it is the same people dangers to the transphobes cannot be overstated. In BC, we have had, they show up at drag shows, they, or they show up this week, they're showing up at um, the office of the Surrey Teachers Association because the Minister of Education, whose office it is, they were unsuccessful in, in unseating her by a recall campaign. So instead they're doing Uh, invasive picketing at her office that and people are literally and psych like live physically in danger psychologically attacked and um, it's going to get it's going to get worse I mean Alberta announced yesterday that they're going to follow the lead of Saskatchewan and go further I, 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 what I did in response to that was set up a group called Lawyers Against Transphobia, which is a, an ad hoc group of lawyers who are um, committed to reversing that trend on a variety of fronts. And the thing about that is that there is so much work, it is, it is almost beyond possible because so many things are happening so fast from the right wing, that it is a transformative cultural moment, in my opinion. And if we lose, that is to say, if the, 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 the gamble that the framers of the Constitution made was that no premier and no prime minister would use the notwithstanding clause because they would pay for it politically. And it would be political suicide. My guess is Scott Moe's not going to go down over that. And if he doesn't, then it's a, it's a ticket for every conservative head of government to come. And in the context of global climate change, 
uh, and the the spasm of countries going me first at a national and local and political level is in conjunction with these developments on the right truly terrifying i i agree with barb completely i think what we're seeing now is while we were celebrating our victories and mopping up the religious right was organizing and developing a momentum that is more terrifying than anything i've seen they're helped of course by the fact that they have state actors who are backing them russia china iran who are fomenting social divisions who are using social media these are things that were not features that that barb and i had to to deal with and who are intensely homophobic regimes and they are threatening the very foundations of democracy in our great neighbor to the south where 25% of americans say that a strong leader is more important than democracy where the supreme court of the united states is overturning rights-based precedents at a dizzying pace based on their personal religious and political predilections and the former president of the united states is on trial for fomenting insurrection and trying to undermine american democracy and yet his own party wants him to be their standard bearer the party of quote unquote law and order and these people now in the past these people were looked on slightly askance by canadians but now you have tucker carlson invited to come up and speak with the premier of alberta like a visiting hero and you have the leading contender for prime minister of canada is very proud of the fact that he was delivering timbits and double doubles with a convoy crowd when they were laying siege to Ottawa, even though they were laying siege to his own constituents. Resolutions were adopted at this year's AGM, among others, calling on the CBA to take several measures to confront systemic discrimination, harassment, and violence against two-spirit, trans, non-binary, and other gender-diverse people. To condemn the use of the notwithstanding clause to enforce policies that force teachers to inform parents if a child wishes to be referred to by a different name or pronouns, and to advocate for the repeal of federal, provincial, and territorial policies that deny appropriate protections, safety, and dignity for two-spirit, trans, non-binary, and gender-diverse children and youth including policies that mandate disclosure of identities or exploration without the student's consent. For those who wish to know or have more questions about gender diverse, gender diverse includes, but is not limited to, gender fluid, agender, gender queer, and questioning individuals. Any colleagues who would like to donate their time and skills can please write to Barbara Findley directly at lawyersagainsttransphobia at gmail.com. So my question for you, as lawyers, as advocates, as human rights, yeah, advocates, I would say, since the beginning of your career, Because I feel like we've talked from the beginning, the fight that you had, 
then we touch upon the, some of the milestone and some of the the progress that you've seen and now the backlashes. But what can we do as a part of the members of the CBA, as part of the legal community, or even just as citizens? I do believe in the power, and I think you've shown it, of like getting together and also speaking up. But then the question is, yeah, what what do you do? You think our listeners could do? What do you think people can do to try to stop those backlashes? And I must say that for the trans right, I know that for a fact, feminist organizations are trying now to move away from this transphobia that they had. Some don't do it at all, and it's a shame, and they are being pointed out. Uh, more and more but uh, I know that they are really trying and uh, there, there, are, there are groups also who are seeking to uh, reach out to those women's rights group and be like okay so now because trans rights are women's rights and they are also you're, you're all fighting the same fights so you should all get together so I, I kind of I do hear this in the community and I do hear this in the circles which I think is very nice though it's not uh, as far from being uh, one by everybody. But I'd like to hear yeah, your, your thoughts on um, maybe some cases that we should get our eyes on that we should talk about in the in the media, in podcasts, uh, or just uh, uh, yeah, your ideas on that because I would like to finish on, a, on a also a, a note of um, what can we do. And also you're very inspiring, so I think uh, you can inspire us a, a lot. Go for it, Deb. Okay. Well, I... With great power comes great responsibility. The law for most of my life, the law was used to oppress our community. And it's only in recent years that the law and lawyers have used the tools and the skills that are available to us to advance the rights of the Rainbow Tribe. Those rights are under threat right now. And it's a call to action to all lawyers to use our tools to use our knowledge, to use our skills, to use our influence in communities. Look at all the lawyers who are political leaders to educate the public about the importance of democracy, about the importance of human rights for all, of the importance of scientific truth and evidence in our policymaking and in our courts of law. It is a time for action. Because if we do not act, it can all be taken away from us. Look at what is happening in the United States right now, where Donald Trump wants every lawyer who works for the federal government, when he becomes the president, to be personally loyal to him. What this reminds me of is a famous and chilling photograph that you can see in the Washington Holocaust Museum showing German judges displaying proudly the swastika on their robes while they swear an oath of personal loyalty to Adolf Hitler. That is the path that our democracies are on to become a Putin Russia, a Xi China, or a theocracy, not a Muslim theocracy, but a Christo-fascist theocracy modeled on the Iranian prototype. If we do not, as lawyers, stand up to defend liberal democracy in our constitution, we will lose it. And there now is the time to act. We It's not too late. It is not inevitable. The odds we face now are not nearly as daunting as what Arb and I faced many years ago, because we have 
decades of precedent on our side, and we still have a robust and independent judiciary. We see that right now in the United States. The only thing that is stopping the Christo-fascists in the United States, all of those anti-trans laws that Barb talked about, a lot of them were struck down by American courts. The American courts are still upholding the rule of law. But that can be undermined over time, and it certainly can spread here. Here, it's even easier. You just need to get addicted to the notwithstanding clause, and the Charter of Rights becomes an interesting historical artifact like the Diefenbaker Bill of Rights. I kind of feel like you also, just before Barbara, you, you also answered that question. Um Because what you just mentioned, uh, Douglas, is that it's true. I, I feel like the, all the work that you've done, it's also, it gives us some tools for protection uh, because there are some case laws that, I mean, when you guys started the work, there was nothing behind you. And now at least we have uh, 20 years now, I mean, 25 years of like case laws and of cases that can be raised, that can be used. Uh, so I, I, for me, at least I feel like a lawyer, it's kind of a protection. And I thank you also for that, for this amazing work that, that, that you did. And that also gives us this very important grounds for future backlashes or for the present backlashes that we have. Um, so that's a very good point. Thanks. And then Barbara, I don't know if you also want to add something or um, yeah, your views on that. Sure. I, I, I was struck in the, in the Touchstone report. One of the things that they identified as a problem was that the, the legal profession was not educated in the in the rights under the charter. And one of the enormous differences over my lifetime, having, I went to law school pre-charter. And so I learned the law pre-charter and I learned what the charter has did to the law. And the our entire generation now of lawyers and judges are steeped in the charter and the values of the charter. And that, that is, I think, an amazing protective factor in the face of transphobic attack, for example. It, having that said, um, the notwithstanding clause is the ringer and we cannot predict, I, well, we can predict either, either that's going to be the downfall of all of us or we are going to find a way judicially to uh, defeat or limit the operation of that going forward. The optimism that I have the optimism that I have comes from community based work, which is imagining uh, imagining justice and Quality, particularly for marginalized communities, in ways which we did not have the imagination to do. That uh, I I really look forward to seeing how those ideas are carried forward into the law and into the legal profession. One of the things that I think is will always be true is that unless marginalized lawyers and i i, I want to pause and say here's doug and i and we are two white cis lawyers 
and that part of the reason we were able to do what we did back then was because we, yes, we were marginalized and we were privileged. And so um, for every, for every community which has greater marginalization, queers of color, trans folk with disabilities, it doesn't matter. Those communities are informing the work that we're doing in ways that didn't exist when, when we were litigating in ways that, and the, so it is the countervailing narrative against the right wing uh, nonsense. I nonsense is the wrong word because it's it it speaks down to people who genuinely hold views that will be disastrous. And uh, one of the areas that I am focusing on these days is how to um, how to engage and move forward across those kinds of differences between us. The literature says that uh, the only effective strategy is to engage by listening and engage by um, meeting people where they are. And we have precious, especially as lawyers, we have precious few skills at knowing how to do that. But that's definitely where we need to go. I have a kind of visceral urge to dismiss the transphobic folks as, you know, idiots and worse. But I have to remind myself that I, uh, I am not so I, in my lifetime, I have been profoundly wrong. I have been one of those people who held attitudes, which I later discovered were, were oppressive, you know, and dismissing them, dismissing people with those views as, um, you know, as deplorables, for example, is entirely the wrong strategy, entirely. So we have to we have to work against our impulse to um, hold ourselves close, uh, fight those kinds of images. We we instead need to be figuring out how to uh, nurture the mycelium that connects all of us, regardless if we know it's there. So that's my thought. Can I mention one last thing? Before oh, please we go? go ahead. Of course. Because I really, it's something I'm really proud of about the foundation of Soji that I forgot to mention. And it's really ties in with another very live issue today where we're just starting to make progress. And that is when we listed the groups that were going to be embraced by Soshi, we expressly mentioned Two-Spirit people. That was very controversial, even amongst our supporters. People didn't know what the hell it meant. And Barb and I, some people who were even friends of ours, tried to talk us into deleting it from the list. 
And we were quite adamant that we want in there because we felt that that was important to the future of our group. Even though at that time, as far as I know, we didn't actually know about any two-spirit people in our group, uh, but we knew about the issues and we were we were learning about the issues. I shouldn't say new. That's too strong a word. We were learning about the issues. We were alive to the issues. We were determined to do what we could to advance the rights of two-spirit people. And I will tell you right now, I'm involved in a challenge to the anti-trans legislation in New Brunswick. One of the organizations I'm representing is the Wabanaki Two-Spirit Alliance. So there we are full circle from the part and I standing up back 30 years ago for spirit people to today where the two spirit people are our allies in demonstrating to the government of New Brunswick that their agenda is contrary to the traditions of Canada prior to the arrival of white settlers. I have so many questions about that. I think this is so interesting, honestly, because also, I mean, we haven't, we, I, we don't often, and also thank you because we don't often talk about the two-spirited people. And I think I would be thrilled to invite actually someone uh, who could talk about that more because, I mean, I, it's something, I mean, I'm also very impressed that 25 years ago they were included in, uh, you know, already. So, um, I mean honestly very much um but that doesn't surprise me because you guys are brilliant uh people but still um i think we're gonna have to do another podcast about that actually my partner was an indigenous woman who was at the conference in winnipeg in 1991 where indigenous people chose the word to spirit to describe the many traditions of same-sex attraction and, and gender identity variance in their communities. And that was a really, that was really wonderful to part of that. Yeah. You had it in your personal life. For me, Barb, I was aware of it because of my AIDS work. And I was at a, a meeting once with some AIDS activists and there was a really amazing two-spirit woman and lawyer, Laverne Manette. And she used the expression in a meeting I was at in the 90s, early 90s, about referred to two-spirit people. And I said, what the hell is that? And she said, Doug, didn't you get an undergraduate degree in history from Western University? I said, yes. She said, you should ask for a refund. <laughs> said, Here's a book. Go and educate yourself. <laughs> I, I read the book and I, I realized. But, you know, I, I realized there was a big gap in my education. But on the other hand, I was also aware that when I did my history studies, that you would think that every person in the history of Western civilization was straight based on the what I've White and male. And male. <laughs> yeah. you know, exactly. Get the six wives of Henry VIII. They, they and I, I should say that now, in, in the context of the Canadian Bar Association, first of all, the... Uh, the Sojik is no longer Sojik. So Sojik is now called Sagda. That's it, yeah. And the the and the executive spent a long time considering what what title would most accurately reflect the relations among uh, the communities of queers and 
and trans and gender diverse people. And also that we as queers have inadvertently always, but nevertheless, uh, participated in the marginalization of trans and gender diverse people and their issues because they are a much smaller community than we are. Doug and I got it right, I think, in relation to subject by making it gender equal, gender we gender parity. Originally, originally, it was not anymore. I don't think they have that rule anymore, but it was for a long time. We that, that, I forgot about that. That was one of our. That was the rule. Yeah. When we set it up, we said you have to have a, a woman and a man as co-chairs oh, as yeah. a requirement, and part of that there are fewer lesbians than there are gay men, generally speaking. So that was a rule that ensured that men would not be making all the decisions but we didn't in, we didn't in that leadership structure contemplate or incorporate trans or two-spirited people or intersex people or intersex people we didn't you know so um so i want to i want to offer that as an example of the line that comes to my mind is do the best you can and when you know more do better yeah, it's and, true. Yeah. And you know, we, we, we did we did what we could and, and it was difficult and, and we were proud of the work we did and at the same time we participated in the creation of marginalization for other people. And so I think that at all points of working for equality or progress, we always have to be explicitly mindful of who may be being marginalized or harmed or excluded by the work that we're doing yeah yeah that's true always need to reach out to everybody making sure that everybody has uh, their voices yeah hear heard yeah i agree and with we that need to avoid for example we need to avoid language like um oh inclusion that suggests that we're the center and that Exclude. Yeah. instead having language like connection or um uh I love that. Or minorities when we're talking yeah, about, mm -hmm. when we're talking about people of color who are in the world, the majority, and we, we, I mean, all of even our language is problematic, very problematic. Our language of equality is problematic, and 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 it might be one of the things that's been most significant between the Touchstone Report and now. That is that collectively we've come to understand that there is a problem about intersection. I'm going to use the word intersection. I actually hate that word, but the, there is a problem of intersectionality and we need strategies to incorporate an intersectional lens, analysis and strategy going forward. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask you why you hate the word intersectionality? I live at the intersection of Dundas and Nanaimo. I am not an intersection. Intersectionality is a is a is a linear idea of of, and that's not at all the way oppressions work. Oppressions suffuse the atmosphere. They are they are. It's as an image. It's a it's an it's a profoundly imperfect image of the ways that oppressions and multiple oppressions work. So while I completely appreciate the concept, I really hate the word. And I think language matters in the way. Well, it's a, a, 
Kimber, the, uh, again, we got to wrap up, but I will just say Kimberly Crenshaw herself, who invented the term intersectionality, has always said of it that it's just an analytical tool or a theory. That's all it is. And I do think that one of the problems with it is that sometimes it gets used like a mantra and it doesn't, people don't really... It's a buzzword. It's a buzzword. People don't really understand it or appreciate it. It's really... It's more important as a concept to understand the complexities of oppression and discrimination instead of using it as a straight a kind of analytical straitjacket or using it as some kind of buzzword that shows that you get it you know that's the, that's the problem that i have with it is that it ends up being used as a kind of intellectual crutch by some people yeah yeah and it's not understood at all also by many people who use it so honestly i would go on forever i mean the discussion there was just I just let you go, guys, and I was uh, totally uh, amazed. So, uh, but I don't know if there's something else that you really wanted to share. Otherwise, I think we have very much really, really interesting material. And thank you so much uh, for that discussion uh, with you. Uh, very, I mean, uh, it's uh, late uh, where I am, but I'm still full of energy because talking to you is very inspiring. So, <laughs> thank you very much. I will just say uh, good luck with your editing. <laughs> A real pleasure to meet you, Julia. It's a real pleasure to meet you as well. Very, nice. very much. And it was very fun to do, uh, to do Old Home Week with Doug. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, you, it's, it shows that you guys know each other for a long time because you have a very good energy together. It's nice. It's wonderful to have, it's wonderful to do something that can be edited. A good editor is your best friend. Thank you so much for listening to us today. And remember to subscribe for more great, roughly bi-monthly episodes of The Every Lawyer. And for more on sexual and gender diverse people's legal issues, check out Steve Bujol's podcast series, Season 5 of Conversations with the President. Reach out to us anytime at podcast at cbe.org and have a great day. <laughs>